Lesson 7, Part 1 of Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Bosk. Elements of Geology by William Ruschenberger. Lesson 7. Influence of External Agents on the Surface of the Earth, Light, Air, and Water. Part 1. Atmospheric Effects Variations of temperature, the air, winds, dryness, and moisture act very perceptibly on most mineral substances. There is not a rock on the surface of the earth which does not present an appearance externally totally differing from what is seen internally when it is broken. This is everywhere seen in escarpments formed by making roads in mountainous countries, where it is necessary to cut through rocks. The exterior is discolored, and more or less extensively disaggregated, compared with the freshly exposed interior. These effects are not solely produced by a great lapse of time. A few years are sufficient for them to be shown, not only on the surface, but to considerable depths. These effects are seen in ancient quarries of marble, or of certain granites, and in dressed stone. The effect is more rapid and perceptible in proportion to the susceptibility of the substance to imbibe moisture and to dry again. Alternations which produce a very rapid disaggregation when frequently repeated, as is generally the case in mountains. The substances which degrade most easily are those of a granular structure, either earthy or crystalline, those of a foliated structure, or compact masses, fractured and split on the surface, such as are often seen in mountains. Frost, when it attacks water absorbed by a body, is also a powerful cause of destruction, because the expansion consequent upon it produces a multitude of cracks in all directions. As long as the cold continues, its parts are held together by ice as by a cement. But when a thaw comes, the whole falls in scales, grains, or dust. Mountains cannot be visited without meeting evident traces of degradation of this kind. In limestone escarpments, we see parts of loose texture more or less hollowed out, and the more solid banks remain. Hence the falling of the latter, which are successively detached in more or less voluminous blocks. In high mountains, often formed of inclined strata, which present their cuts or planes to the slope, we observe the most marked degradations. Parts are constantly detached, particularly at times of most sensible atmospheric variations. At the instant of thaw, enormous avalanches of stones occur, and roll down the sides with astonishing rapidity, sweeping everything in their course. Sometimes great blocks and considerable portions of the mountain fall with tremendous noise. Hence the enormous debris which accumulate at the base, sometimes covering a great extent. Degradations attributable to these effects. The degradation which many rocks present is generally attributed to atmospheric influences, long continued. Almost all rocks, in fact, are more or less deeply changed and are in a state of much less solid aggregation, much less homogeneous on the surface than they are internally. In almost all quarries, 
it is necessary to remove a great mass of matter before obtaining blocks which are homogeneous, solid, free from cracks, and possessed of the bright colors which are ordinarily sought. This is especially the case with marble, and generally also with compact limestone. Certain granites are so deeply disintegrated that the whole surface of the soil presents a mass of gravel and rounded hills, gullied by the rain in all directions. Frequently we find these granites on the surface of the soil, in great rounded blocks, piled up one on the other in the strangest manner, sometimes in unstable equilibrium, and susceptible of oscillating from the slightest effort. These are termed rocking stones in some localities. In mountains where the granite is easily decomposed, we often remark that the mass, more or less cut, is in a sort of horizontal stories, divided by vertical fissures, so as to present a kind of agglomeration of irregular parallelepipeds. It is supposed that, in consequence of atmospheric influences, these angular blocks are altered on their faces and angles, that the disaggregated parts are successively detached, producing round masses, piled on each other like cheeses, as we now see, sometimes isolated on the surface of the soil. Action of Winds, Dunes Although winds act but very feebly on solid mineral masses, they exert an important influence on deposits of fine movable sands. We know that in the deserts of Africa and Arabia, the winds raise immense clouds of burning sands, conveying them from place to place, and suddenly producing vast hills, sometimes quite high, which a new gale again destroys. All sandy sea coasts are exposed to similar effects. The least gale sets the sands in motion, and produces, on the previously uniform surface, a multitude of wrinkles or ridges, parallel to each other, separated by a greater or less interval, and each presenting a gentle slope towards the wind, and a more abrupt declivity on the opposite side. The next gust of wind sets all these ridges in motion, and each one is soon found to occupy the space which separated it from the preceding ridge. This phenomenon of dunes or downs is seen in miniature on the sea beaches, and they sometimes invade immense tracts on adjacent plains. These hills, placed one behind the other, in a direction perpendicular to that of the prevailing winds, are constantly in motion, and constantly advance towards the interior of the land. The wind from seaward drives the sand from the foot of the hillock to its summit whence it falls in the line, forming at this point a falling talus, always more abrupt than the first or rising talus. The result of this is a single hillock, taken separately, which grows behind if new sands be furnished in front, or it is displaced if the same sands are continually removed. Now, the wind acting on all these hillocks at the same time, the mass formed by them is found to have moved a certain distance inland in a short time, while new heaps are formed in front, at the expense of the sands freshly washed up from the sea. It is calculated that dunes advance, in this way, twenty or thirty yards a year, so that it is evident there must have been a time when they were far from the places they have invaded. A great many localities are known, which have been submerged by the seas of sand. Lightning sometimes produces remarkable effects. 
in a great many places and on various rocks, traces of fusion by thunderbolts in high mountains have been observed. According to the observations of Friedler, when lightning penetrates sand, it often forms narrow, irregular canals to a great depth, the sides of which are consolidated by the fusion of quartz itself, and there are instances where considerable portions of rocks have been turned round, torn from their places and hurled to great distances by lightning. Effects of Water Water plays a very important part in the changes which are taking place on the surface of the globe, sometimes by its dissolving power, but more frequently by its softening action, its weight, and especially by the motion that may be communicated to it, and by the transporting power resulting from its rapidity. The extent and importance of modifications from this agent ought to be understood. Dissolving Power Water exerts a chemical action on some substances which it dissolves, either directly or by means of the carbonic acid it may contain. It acts directly on some salts which it meets here and there, or on some deposits of sulfate of lime, which it corrodes in various ways. When more or less charged with carbonic acid, it acts on calcareous rocks, either underground or where they crop out on the surface, or in high mountains at the time snows are melting. In this case, the water generally possesses itself of the carbonic acid contained in the air, in greater quantity than at other times, in consequence of its low temperature. And running over calcareous masses, it forms furrows which gradually deepen, and sometimes cause very considerable falls of rock. These slow effects of water are particularly remarked in the Alps and Pyrenees, where the snow remains a part of the year and melt by degrees in the fine season. Softening Power Water, by penetrating argillaceous beds, sometimes softens them so much that they cannot remain on the slopes they occupied and fall from their own weight. This is the cause of many falls or slides in sedimentary formations. One of the most remarkable catastrophes of this kind happened in 1806 at Rufeburg or Rossberg in Switzerland after a very rainy season. The argillaceous matters which cemented the rolled flints forming the mountain becoming softened, a mass of more than fifty million of cubic yards was suddenly detached and precipitated into the valley, forming it in hills sixty yards high, and burying several villages under masses of mud and flints. We often see, on a small scale, thick beds of rock gently slide to the bottom of valleys on softened argillaceous beds which supported them, and tranquilly displaced plantations and even the inhabitants on them, without the proprietors perceiving it at the first moment. Waters which filter through rocks to argillaceous layers, which may arrest them, and on the plane of which they are directed to the surface, sometimes soften these substances also, carrying away parts successively, and especially sands that may rest on them, laying bare in this way underlying beds. This is termed denudation. There results from this at the point where the water breaks forth from the declivity of hills, more or less extensive voids, which leave the solid superposed masses without support, which are then dislocated in different ways and soon overthrown. This is frequently seen in certain escarpments, at the base of which are found argilo-arenaceous layers which conduct the springs externally. Erosion 
Something analogous happens when waters, which washing the foot of a mountain, meet there with substances that they can easily soften or disaggregate. These substances being destroyed, the upper parts of the soil are soon undermined, and more or less considerable falls occur. This takes place on sea coasts, on the shores of lakes or rivers where more or less elevated escarpments are formed and more and more degraded. The same thing happens sometimes at the foot of cascades which fall over rocky peaks, forming alternately calcareous and argillaceous deposits. The latter are disaggregated and borne away little by little by the waters which exude on the periots or jet forth after the fall, and other layers being undermined must fall sooner or later from their own weight. In this case the cascade cuts deep into the soil, and the same being successively repeated, necessarily forms a gorge or bed the whole length of the rivulet, which deepens more and more. It is in this way that the falls of Niagara, by which the waters of Lake Erie are precipitated into those of Lake Ontario, have sensibly receded since the discovery by Europeans, and probably have excavated the deep bed through which they afterwards escape. The waters, after cutting through strata of limestone, about fifty feet thick in the rapids, descend perpendicularly at the falls of Niagara, over another mass of limestone about ninety feet thick, beneath which lie soft shales of equal thickness, continually undermined by the action of the spray, driven violently by gusts of wind against the base of the precipice. In consequence of this disintegration, portions of the incumbent rock are left unsupported, and tumble down from time to time, so that the cataract is made to recede southwards. The sudden descent of huge rocky fragments of the undermined limestone at the Horseshoe Fall in 1828, and another at the American Fall in 1818, are said to have shaken the adjacent country like an earthquake. According to the statement of our guide in 1841, Samuel Hooker, an indentation of about 40 feet has been produced in the middle ledge of limestone at the Lesser Fall since the year 1815, so that it has begun to assume the shape of a crescent, while within the same period the Horseshoe Fall has been altered so as less to deserve its name. Goat Island has lost several acres in area in the last four years, prior to 1841, and I have no doubt that this waste neither is, nor has been, a mere temporary accident since I found that the same recession was in progress in various other waterfalls which I visited with Mr. Hall in the state of New York. Some of these intersect the same rocks as the Niagara, for example, the Genesee at Rochester. Others are cutting their way through newer formations, Allen's Creek, below Leroy, or the Genesee at its upper falls at Portage. Mr. Bakewell calculated that, in the forty years preceding 1830, the Niagara had been going back at the rate of about a yard annually. But I conceive that one foot per year would be a much more probable conjecture, in which case 35,000 years would have been required for the retreat of the falls from the escarpment of Queenston to their present site, if we could assume that the retrograde movement had been uniform throughout. This, however, could not have been the case, as at every step in the process of excavation, the height of the precipice, the hardness of the materials at its base, and the quantity of fallen matter to be removed, must have varied. At some points it may have receded much faster than at present, at others much slower, and it would be scarcely possible to decide whether its average progress has been more or less rapid than now. 
Lyle's Travels in North America. Effects of Weight Water, acting by its own weight, like other bodies, evidently often contributes to such landfalls as we mention, and also exerts a powerful action on the dikes and barriers which retain it. We see the unhappy effects of inundations, to which certain countries are subject from their vicinity to rivers, lakes, or seas, retained by natural or artificial dikes. Action of Running Waters To the softening action and weight of waters is often added a new power, from the motion they acquire by running over steep descents. This force is sometimes prodigious. The effects are seen after storms which pass over movable substances in the deep ravines found to have been excavated. These effects are in proportion to the mass of water and the rapidity of its motion on a particular point. When a hurricane or violent storm bursts on a mountain, the soil is often found, unless it consists of living rock, removed and gullied to great depths. The numerous fissures on the surface of rocks facilitate the action of waters and a considerable mass of fragments is soon detached, which increase more and more the destructive power of the current. Then blocks of every size are loosened, torn from the mountain, and transported to great distances, multiplying the effects ten or even a hundredfold, in proportion to their mass and rapidity of motion. Hence we have great ravines on slopes that were previously unbroken, and an immense accumulation of debris at the foot of the mountain, and especially where the soil or the swiftness of the stream abated. Torrents swollen by circumstances of this kind, or by the sudden melting of snows, also produce frightful ravages. They sweep everything in their way, even the living rock, which they soon attack forcibly by the fragments and blocks they swiftly urge along. Nothing is more terrible than this kind of watercourse and to form an exact idea of the effects one must see a gorge through which it has passed, sometimes rolling along rocks measuring ten or fifteen cubic yards. Debacle of Lakes Lakes which sometimes form in valleys, by avalanches or falls of land, constituting a barrier which retains them, are most fearful in their debacle, sudden escape of their waters from breaking of their barrier, in consequence of an enormous mass of water rushing forth in a few seconds. Scarcely does a flow begin through a few rents, before the first opening rapidly enlarges, and in an instant the whole dike is carried away. An enormous volume of water is then precipitated with extreme violence, and nothing can withstand the combined effects of its mass and rapidity. All is overturned, and the most solid rocks, if they project in the least, across the direction of the current, are instantly torn away broken, and transported to great distances. The clearing is so complete at the origin of the current, and in the narrow passages where the slope is rapid, that the exposed rock seems to have been cut by the hand of man. Mud torrents, from one cause or another, are also formed, which are not less terrible in their ravages. It sometimes happens, as in Ireland, that turf beds placed on a slight declivity after being swelled, more or less arched by retaining rainwater beneath them, cannot resist the first heavy shower, and are set in motion. They run then, in spite of the consistence of the mud, and the gentleness of the descent, with prodigious rapidity, and sweep everything they meet. 
Under other circumstances, the rainwater soak in loose, argillaceous substances, accumulate in the midst of them, and at a certain moment, the dikes of the reservoir give way, and a torrent of thick mud, filled with fragments of rock and even blocks, suspended in the viscid mass, is formed and rushes with fearful rapidity, overturning everything, and cutting deep ravines. Slopes of Torrents and Rivers The disastrous effects of torrents are in proportion to the descent on which they move, but it does not necessarily follow that their bed must have a very considerable inclination. The most rapid torrents, forming a continuous bed and carrying rocks a half yard in diameter, have a descent of only one or two degrees, and many rivers flow very swiftly on a much less slope. A descent of from three to four minutes, sixty to a degree, is about the limit for navigable rivers. Rolled Flints or Pebbles In the ravages produced by water currents, the debris torn from mountains are transported to a greater or less distance, accordingly as the inclination of the soil permits the current to maintain its force for more or less considerable distances. But in proportion as the slopes diminish, the swiftness decreases, and the larger blocks successively remain behind, at the bottom of the valley, and then those of smaller size, and successively the sand and mud, which are often carried enormous distances. In this rolling of different substances, the blocks and fragments sinking during their transportation, rubbing against each other and against the soil, gradually lose their prominences and angles, and in the end become completely rounded, forming what are termed rolled flints, which may be more or less voluminous. All the lower parts of torrents, where the soil is sufficiently flattened, where the enlargement of the valley permits the waters to expand, diminishing their depth, and consequently their rapidity, is generally found covered with these flints, which are sometimes accumulated in immense quantities, and through which, in its ordinary course, the stream meanders in different ways, in a bed it forms and often changes. Rivers and lakes into which torrents empty, and where they consequently lose their swiftness, are often loaded with these flints, and this is the cause of the constant elevation of the bed of the river Po. Gravel and sand, which are merely small flints, the mud which results from their friction, and the earthy particles removed, are always transported far, either immediately into lakes or seas or rivers, which deposit them on their banks, and especially at their mouths, which they more or less obstruct. Rolled flints, or pebbles, are also formed by the action of the waves on fallen rocks. In this way, on the coasts of France and England, the silex, or flints of the chalk, are rounded by being rubbed against each other, and constitute considerable banks of pebbles or shingle. Something similar must have taken place at points now far inland, where we find blocks round and smooth, at a short distance from rocks from which they were evidently detached. Transportation by Ice and Glaciers On the shores of northern seas, the ice envelops blocks and masses of rocks, which, at the breaking up, are floated away on ice cakes in all directions, and deposited here and there, wherever they may ground, or fall to the bottom of the sea. In this way, in Canada, Greenland, and on the coasts of Nova Zembla, etc., very voluminous blocks are transported from one place to another, and often to very considerable distances from the point of departure.
there is no doubt that many small debris embedded in the ice are transported in the same way and form adventitious deposits of more or less extent. Glaciers, that is, beds of ice occupying the high valleys of lofty mountain chains, are also very remarkable means of transportation. Various circumstances, their great weight chiefly, keep these deposits in constant, though very slow motion, from half an inch to an inch an hour, descending along the slopes on which they rest. Now, the surface of these glaciers is found to be covered with fragments and blocks which have fallen from the surrounding mountains, and the whole is conveyed from the upper to the lower part, and blocks, often of enormous size, are carried without friction to considerable distances from their place of origin. These debris, from several causes, always accumulate on the lateral parts of the glacier, against the side of the valley, and frequently in the middle also, from other valleys emptying laterally into it from which result long, slender hills, designated under the term moraines. All these debris, having reached the inferior extremity of the glacier, tumble into the valley on its slope, and form at its foot other moraines, often of considerable height. If, after having increased for a certain time in consequence of a series of cold summers, the glacier diminishes again by a succession of warm, prolonged summers, the moraines of different kinds, abandoned by the ice, are left on the soil. Some form dikes, of more or less height, at the bottom and across the valley, and others long lines on the flanks of the valley, at a greater or less elevation. It must be borne in mind that the slopes on which glaciers move are always much greater than those of rivers, and that they never descend at an angle of less than three degrees. This must also be the minimum slope of masses of debris resting on the sides of the valley, in consequence of the rapid melting of the glacier. Thus we have a means of distinguishing the remains of lateral moraines from deposits which have been made by water currents, the slopes of which are very much less. Striae, channels, polishing of rocks. Among the effects produced by the motion of a glacier loaded with debris and moving slowly over the exposed face of a rock is a rubbing, wearing, and polishing of the surface which it passed over. The angles of the rocks passed over are rounded. Deep undulating grooves, nearly parallel and longitudinal, are cut in the surface, and the polished surface of the rock passed over is scratched with fine striae, even when it is of the hardest quartz. These effects are well known to be produced by modern glaciers. End of Lesson 7